All right, guys, let's do this. Welcome back to an all-new exciting episode of the Halloween Horathon. We're about 10 days out from Halloween, and I don't think we've really talked about too many vampire movies on the show, have we? I didn't think so. So how about we take it back to the 80s, where I consider the heyday of vampire films, and talk today about a lesser-known title, one of my personal favorite vampire titles, a little-known vampire movie from 1986 starring Grace Jones called Vamp. Did you ever have one of those nights? Hey, where are we going? Ah, doesn't matter. What counts is that you're my buddy. <laughs> my day didn't start off too well. We be looking for you. Are we chumpy tonight? And then it got worse. We're here. And then, gentlemen, I give you Katrina. You're just what I'm looking for. Why'd you pick on us? It's a mistake. It was a little error there, a little communication error. I'm sorry. Uh oh. Let's just get out of here. This is not really happening. Hello, baby. You look awful. What happened to you? I was nearly hung. I got into a fight with a psychotic albino. I ate a cockroach, my best friend disappeared, and then I'm nearly assassinated by a runaway elevator. Anyone can have an off night? This is fantastic! Fab, a comedy with bites. And of course, Grace Jones. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. Like I said, we are talking today about 1986's Vamp. My name is Ed. This is the Halloween Horathon. Doing things solo yet again. Miss you, Mads. That was so fun. If you listen to Tales from the Dark Side, you know, it, it, if it sounded like, if it felt like her and I had great chemistry together, it's just, I, I've missed her so much. And. Doing that episode with her was more of a reminder of why I love doing this with her. And as much as I'm having fun doing these episodes with you guys by myself, I, I do look to my left and I miss having her be there to talk over with. So, uh, yeah, Mads, I miss you, kid. I can't wait for you to come back, which will be sooner than later. So let's get back to the show. Let's see. You know what? Let's just do it. Nitty gritty. So let's get down to the nitty-gritty. All right, so Vamp was released on July 18th, 1986 from New World Pictures. It opened up in 11th place against Aliens, Karate Kid Part 2, Top Gun, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. No wonder it was 11th. Opening weekend box office was $2.2 million, going on to gross $4.9 million on a budget of $3.3 million. 
This film was directed by Richard Wink, produced by Donald Borchers, written for the screen by Richard Wink and Donald Borchers, music by Jonathan Elias, edited by Mark Grossman, cinematography by Elliot Davis, starring Chris Makepeace as Keith, Robert Russler as AJ, Grace Jones as Katrina, Dee Dee Pfeiffer as Allison, J.D. Watanabe as Duncan, Billy Drago as Snow, and Sandy Barron as Vic. So now that we know who made the film, let's take a walk over to the Critics' Corner and see what they thought. Alright guys, so Vamp has a current Rotten Tomato score rating of 25% from 8 reviews. It has no meta score, that's a first. It has a current cinema score of C- and a letterbox score of 3 out of 5. Roger Ebert gave the film two stars, saying some funny lines and the relationship between the human kid and his best pal, the vampire, is handled with a lot of original twists. But the movie finally descends, as so many films do these days, to one of those assembly line endings made up of fights and chases. DJR Bruckner from the New York Times called the writing and direction weak and the story so confusing that Vamp often seems as silly as the films it tries to ridicule. Variety praised the film, calling it extremely imaginative with a very good cast and referred to Grace Jones' dance number as an auteur showstopper. And finally, Sid Smith from the Chicago Tribune gave it one and a half stars out of four. So, you get it. The basic consensus is it was not very well liked by pretty much no one. I mean, no meta score tells me all I need to know about this film if I'm looking, you know, the outside looking in. But who gives a damn what they think? I, I still get a kick out of it. That's why I still include it in there. That's, that's why we still take a walk to the critics' corner because we don't care, but we're kind of curious, you know? So, that's what they thought. What about me? (laughs) You know I loved it. And why? Well, first of all, because without Vamp, there would be no From Dust Till Dawn. Just so you know. Keep that in the back of your head. So, I love this film because I think Grace Jones is, is an unstoppable force. I love this film because of the authentic friendship between Keith and AJ. I love this film because of the Duncan role and how hilarious Watanabe is as the kid. I love this film because of the the adorable way Allison's strap keeps slipping as she keeps on fixing it instead of adjusting it. I love this film because of Sandy Barron's eyebrows. I love this film because of the creative usage of the red and green colors throughout. I love this film because of all the horror humor going on and how it actually works for me. Much funnier than this film gets credit for, I'll tell you that. I love this film because of Vic's obsession with Vegas. I love this film because of Katrina's middle finger bow out. I love this film because of Billy Drago and his gang always showing up at the worst moments. I love this film because of Jonathan Elias' small yet memorable score. And finally, I love this film because that end credit credit shot is so goddamn good. Okay, so personally, I have always been a big fan of this film. Um... It's one of those movies that you see it as a kid and it kind of sticks with you. And then as you get older and you start browsing the horror section in the video store, that infamous cover with um, 
Grace Jones with the vampire and just like the V coming those slash down. Like that stands out, stuff like that. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have my hand, I've gotten my hands on the Arrow Blu-ray that was released about four years ago. Um, the cover art here is pretty cool. Um, I love this, the, the neon uh, little blue and purple color scheme going on on here on the um you know the, the the drawn makeshift cover art and then on the ver reverse side you've got the same art i was talking about that cover box that looking at it right now talking to you guys getting flashbacks of my childhood not gonna lie so anywho not sure who, those of you who are not familiar with air releases they always come with a book inside kind of like criterion films that uh kind of give off credits of the film and how the uh usually talks about the transfer because this has a uh, new transfer to the actual uh, release. And there's also liner notes, and I figured this is kind of fitting since this is the part of the show where I always break down the origins rather than talk about what I learned from watching the documentary that's on this Blu-ray. I'm just going to read these notes because I figured what better way to do it than just do this. So... It's titled Vamp, More Than Just Scary Laughs. Those who have already seen Vamp know what they're in for, but to those who have not yet had the pleasure, allow me to introduce you to this startlingly stylish, genre-defying, and singular spectacle. To call it a vampire horror comedy is an understandable characterization of a one that is both underwhelming and inappropriate. Yes, Vamp is all of those things, full of fangs, screams of fright, and howls of laughter, and yet it is also so much more. This is no mere spoof, no winking, self-conscious exaggeration of its cinematic forebears. Vamp is something truly special and takes unsuspecting viewers, much like the characters in the film, on what starts out as a joyride of good intentions and ends up as an inescapable neon nightmare. Celluloid vampires are as old as the movies themselves, with the first Fang feature dating back to 1896, a year after the Lumiere brothers filmed that train coming into the station. Before cinematic trickster George Mealis took an intergalactic leap with his most famous film, Le Voyage, de, I, I, I'm not even going to pronounce it, A Trip to the Moon, 1902. He gave us The Haunted Castle in 1896, a three-minute short in which a fluttering bat takes human form and uses magic to create a cauldron and summon a servant out of thin air which is only the beginning of a series of appearances and disappearances. Merely a stylist, okay, a stylistic stock, uh, stock in trade. That was in parentheses. When the hero kisses a maiden's hand, she morphs into a monster, establishing the, the visual motif of sexually induced transformation that will motivate and eroticize the genre for decades to come. The ensuing century plus has proven that the vampire is arguably the most successfully resurrected archetype in the film in film history, from Nosferatu to and Dracula 
to Hammer's acclaimed nine-film Dracula cycle. To recent Twilight craze, there are too many more in between to even begin noting. Suffice to say that some were scary, some were sexy, some were serious, some were silly, and some, well, just sucked. Vamp emerged in the midst of two decades of rampant cinematic vampire revisionism. The 70s and 80s were among the most fertile years for cinematic bloodsucking. Not a year went by without yet another revamp of the, of the genre, twisting the tradition into new allegories, pushing the limits of on-screen sexuality and carnage, or merely poking fun at cliches. Among the most radical transformations and the most relevant precursors to vamp involved the art-chic eroticism and female sexuality of Daughters of Darkness from 1971 and Fascination from 1979, the race and social allegories of, Bla of Blackula from 1972, Scream Blackula Scream from 1973, and Ganja and Hess from 1973, the high camp of Love at First Bite from 1979, and the disco fever of Nocturna, granddaughter of Dracula from 1979, two culture class spoofs which bring vampires from the old world to the new world, face-to-face -face with glamour, music, and modernity in New York City, and the teenage coming-of-age comedies Fright Night and Once Bitten, in which high schoolers come face-to-face -face and in the latter, in the latter, neck-to-neck, with creatures of the night who threaten the stability of their adolescent worlds. Fashion, camp, music, race, gender, Adolescence and urban modernism, modernism are all crucial stylistic and thematic elements of vamp. And while the above films may have paved the way, what is most remarkable about vamp is not how it references them or reworks their ideas, but instead how it manages to chart a wholly original course of its own. With so many historical baggage, it would have been easy to rest on the conventions and benchmarks of its predecessors. And thankfully, Wink and his cast and crew decided to create new touchstones, widening and enriching, enri widening and enriching the genre rather than sucking dry the blood of its filmic family. <clears throat> Vamp began as a simple concept from producer Donald Borchers, who got his start working for Abigail Embassy Pictures and who had also been an associate producer on the neo-retro sword and sandal epic The Beastmaster before forming his own independent company, Planet Productions. Teaming up with distributor New World Pictures, Borchers produced a successive string of commercial successes, Angel, Children of the Corn, and Tough Turf, as well as the controversial Crimes of Passion, which has since become a cult classic in its own right. For Planet Productions' fifth picture, Borchers had a pitch-perfect concept that boiled down to just two words, stripper vampires. For a director, Borchers sought out a young talent, Richard Wank, with only a short film to his credit. His thesis project from NYU, Dracula Bites the Big Apple, was a musical comedy about Count Dracula moving to New York City. An out-all-night adventure, its highlights include a cab ride through Times Square, a magnificent sequence set to the cleverly reworded Dancing in the Moonlight, and the Count being denied entry to Studio 54, the sole acting appearance by a real-life Studio 54 co-founder, co Steve Rubell.
Despite being a, a student film, Dracula Bites the Big Apple found success and was sold to HBO during the early years of the cable company. Ironically, Wink was not so much of a horror fan and instead cites Alfred Hitchcock and his blending of characters in distress with sudden unexpected doses of humor as a major influence. This detachment from genre fandom worked in Wink's favor, and the script that he came up with was refreshing and innovative. So we open up with the credits being set to lingering smoke before we see a bell tower bell being rung, and a cult of people wrapped in white cloaks taking two college kids up to the tower. The two college kids are revealed to be AJ and Keith, played by Robert Rushler and Chris Makepeace. They are tied up and they have nooses placed around their necks as the two look at each other with smirks. Now, Robert Rustler, you might know him from Weird Science and Elm Street 2. Chris Makepeace is from Meatballs, has since kind of quietly stopped acting. Robert Rustler is still in the genre. I do know he did a Blood Feast remake a handful of years back. It wasn't that long ago, to be honest. It was about, I, don't, I want to say, like six, seven years ago. Um, it was him and Caroline, Carolyn Williams from um, Stretch, from Texas Chainsaw 2. And, um, yeah, he's still active. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just saw him uh, about a month or two ago come up on uh, the Thing With Two Heads podcast. He was on there for two episodes. And uh, funny guy, if you're familiar with the... Um, Sean Clark and Horace Hollow Hollow Grounds, he pops up on there. There's kind of a running gag between uh, him and Sean with uh, him popping up in all of his segments trying to get Sean to do a Elm Street 2 um, revisit, and it's just not happening, and it's kind of been a gag for the last handful of years. It's still going strong. Um, Chris Makepeace, I wish I knew I was... More from I wish I was more familiar with his work. Unfortunately, I'm not outside of this and Meatballs. Uh, like I said, the man kind of got out of acting not long after this. So um, he does pop up, though, in the documentary. So it was pretty cool seeing him um, after all these years. And he does make a point to say at the start of the interview that he does not, you know, talk about anything really. He kind of – he's – out of Hollywood and stays out of Hollywood and but he considers this as like his baby and that's something cool about this movie um I'm sorry if I'm getting off track here watching the documentary on this movie and just watching the movie as much as I have um you you get a real feel like these people involved in the making of it it's like there's there's a connection with them and and you can tell that they had a lot of fun um making this movie and it was a real tight ship because the cast isn't really big i mean i went down the, the cast list of like six seven names and that's pretty much it outside of a bunch of like secondary actors who don't really have any dialogue or anything they're just kind of background characters but outside of that the, the people involved, they, they gave it their all. And the behind the scenes, you know, you can see that. And um, so, yeah, let's get back to the story. So uh, they got the smirks on their faces. Um, they kind of think it's a joke. And uh, it's revealed that it is because the leader in red welcomes them to their worst nightmare. 
and begins a monologue before a tape deck playing his words starts acting up and it's revealed that the whole thing is a joke. AJ tells Keith it's a halfway house for morons and the two make fun of the fraternity and call them out for being such a joke. He then proceeds to tell the leader of the frat that they can hook them up for their big party with anything they need. So the two leave the tower and it's revealed that AJ agreed to getting them a stripper for the night. They go back to their dorm and AJ starts calling strippers he knows but to no avail. After being turned down over and over, AJ tells Keith that they're going on a field trip and asks how much money he's got. Keith's not exactly comfortable going along with AJ's plan, but he reveals he has $82 as soon as AJ opens up the dorm room, the door to reveal the halfway house, I mean the hallway full of immature college kids in the house. AJ mentions that all they need now are a set of wheels, which brings us to Duncan, played by uh, Gidi Watanabe, you know, uh, Long Duck Dong from 16 Candles. He has a handful of other college mates associating with him who are later revealed to be a number of people that he has paid to hang out with him. AJ and Keith come to him about a car and tell him that they're going on a trip and they need a ride. After a number of attempts by Duncan to show off in front of the two, he finally tells them that they're in luck because he has one car left. When he goes to discuss money, they convince him to let them use the car as more of a favor. But he's got to come along. He's got to come along with them, and they need to pretend to be his friends for a week. That is the deal. This is fantastic. Hey guys, I'm psyched. Let's party. Hey, where are we going? Ah, doesn't matter. What counts is that you're my buddy. <laughs> for a week. So we're right off the bat. We can tell that this Duncan character is uh, pretty pathetic. You know. But he's rich, and he's uh, pretty gullible and pretty easy to uh, maintain. Not maintain. He's he's pretty easy to uh, take advantage of. Obviously, you got Keith and AJ know exactly where to go. Well, actually, it's more of AJ's idea. Keith's just kind of following suit here. But um, yeah, you got this this weak Duncan character. Funny though, uh, I do like this little sequence here where he just randomly pulls out a platter of meats. And sits it in front of the two, and he's just like, pig in, guys, come on. And and when that doesn't work out, you know, there's just a bunch of other attempts. He's just trying his hardest to just fit in and, you know, money and, and all that. It's just funny guy. Uh, next shot is an ecstatic AJ in the backseat uh, saying how fun it's going to be and how great their trip is going to be. Um, and then we have another shot of the guys driving through the country into town when they decide to go to a place called the After Dark Club that they find in a newspaper. Uh, this is at this point when the guys enter L.A. and they're driving through the city when A.J. suddenly is cut off and the car suddenly pulls off the longest spin out in movie history. It's weird. So he gets cut off. And he's spinning and spinning. I want to say this car spins around like at least seven, eight times in this scene, if you, if you count. And suddenly, you know, after he's done spinning out, they're on a street with no one around when prior to this, it was like a busy intersection. It's just kind of a weird editing sequence to me or editing error, perhaps. I don't, I don't know. I, tr I tend not to think too hard about it, but 
when going through to take notes for this this uh, show. It that was just one sequence that really stood out. Um, not the knock on the movie. Um, still a big fan of this stuff. So, all right. So the sun's now set, and the trio are seen driving through a bad part of town with trash everywhere, hardly a soul to be seen. And before I get to the next part with them in the diner, I want to talk about this. Uh, red and green color screen that's going on throughout the film this is something that you're going to be seeing a lot this is done because they had a limited budget and since the film was primarily done when in night shoots in the city uh the dp offered to use a different color system or a color method rather than just white because he said that uh white light would just look cheap on when um you know, in the end product. So they ended up in the long run going with this red and green light scheme uh, that's used in the city scenes, in the club. You see it um, even in this diner coming up that, that they're going to be in. You're going to see it a lot. And uh, in the sewers, that's where it's used, like, primarily. Like, you see it. That's where it pops out the most is the sewer scenes. Um I dig it. It's it's different. It's something you don't ever see in film, um, and if you do, it's nothing like this. This this is something different. This is something unique, and something that I've always appreciated and visually found just good stuff. So let's cut to this diner now. Uh, inside the diner, uh, Keith mentions the club not being open until after dark. And while doing that, the diner's cook overhears him talking about it, and he becomes panicked. And this is a funny scene. He uh, takes off his apron, puts on a priest outfit, grabs his cross, and tells the guys to hurry on up because it's closing time. And when he turns to go lock up, uh, the character Snow, played by Billy Drago, and his gang enter the diner. And when he's told he's closing up, Snow responds with, you just opened, before forcing themselves inside to order six cups of coffee to go. Now, yeah, Snow, played by Billy Drago here, um, the late Billy Drago. Uh, first thing off the bat, Billy Drago is not albino. He mentions in the documentary, because this documentary came out before he passed away, that <clears throat> the screenplay called for an albino gang leader, uh, Although this character's attitude just fit his profile and he really wanted to, he, he wanted this role basically. And he talks about how he went out of his way to do the bleaching. He bleached his hair, his eyebrows, and even his eyelashes for this role. Thankfully, he got it. And we now have this uh, snow character who uh, doesn't do a whole lot in the movie. Um, He's just kind of a character, kind of um, a red herring, so to speak. Because um, right off the bat, you see him and his gang, and you think that they're part, they're, they're obvious vampires, right? But no, they're actually few characters who aren't vampires in the end. So it's uh, kind of a good little pull the rug from under you. You know, you think one thing, but it's something else. So yeah, that's, that's what I feel his character is primarily used for. Uh, so while the coffees are being made, Keith locks eyes with the woman in the gang who is sucking on a Twizzler. The two start getting cute with each other as AJ tells Keith to stop and that he's not kidding. 
This is when the girl smiles at Keith, revealing a mouthful of terribly crooked white, I mean, uh, yellow teeth, freaking him out. And when she sees this, she becomes offended, tells Snow. Snow gets up, walks over to the guys, and asks Keith if he's seen something funny. Um, as he further makes threats at Keith, Duncan walks out of the bathroom and awkwardly mentions how it's going to be at least another hour on the toilets because the pipes are tough. And then he heads back saying, back to work. Girl pulls out a switchblade and slowly begins cutting off the buttons to Keith's shirt when AJ intervenes by asking Snow if it exactly if it's exactly worth it because of three lousy teeth. This is when Snow knocks AJ's coffee all over him. And in a funny quick scene, he just kind of looks up like, oh shit. It pisses AJ off, so he grabs Snow by the balls, proceeds to squeeze harder and harder, dancing around the diner with one hand as he grips harder and harder with the other. AJ yells for Duncan to finish up with the toilet seats as Duncan walks out and says, lucky they didn't try the bathrooms because he was ready for them. This is when the three leave and head to the Duncan. So yeah, um, at this point, Duncan's here for comic relief. That's primarily and and perfect perfect uh, role for Watanabe. Um, AJ is kind of like the no nonsense, kind of the muscle of of the three, and Keith is just your average Joe. So the. We're at the club now. We're introduced to Vic at the door. This is the Sandy Baron character, Vic, who I've got a lot to talk about as the uh, film goes on. He asks Duncan and Keith for their ID. Vic snatches Duncan's wallet, notices that it's filled with large bills and credit cards, so he hands it back and says, good enough, and lets him in. Duncan sets the two up at a table in front of the stage. AJ is seen at the bar at this point. As AJ and Keith are seen giving each other looks, uh, they're acting on their plan. Allison appears in Keith's sight and starts smiling and waves at him before walking over to him saying, You don't remember me, do you? It's been a long time, but I remember you. After seeing Vic signaling for her to get back to work, she takes their orders with her while her spaghetti strap continues to fall. And she continues... She, the spaghetti strap, it's, it's adorable. It keeps falling as she's taking the order. And she keeps on putting it back up instead of stopping to fix it. And this is when we see the film's standout moment. The highlight of the film. I mean, call it what you will. This is one of the biggest scenes. This is the infamous Grace Jones dance sequence. Uh, she comes out and she's dressed in this red wig. Um with a white face while revealing her incredible Keith Herring body art with a metal grill bra. She's doing this dance number to this original um, score set to Jonathan Elias, uh, a beat of his that she does vocals on uh, according to trivia that I did some digging for. The song is called Vamp and it has never been before um, released commercially. And it's too bad. It's a good song. Um, everyone's blown away in silence when she's done. She's dancing around this uh, this white like body chair, and it goes on for a few minutes. And it's yeah, it's, it's um, I I implore you to check this scene out because it's definitely the film's standout moment. 
Uh, AJ is next seen talking to one of the club female workers. Um, she takes him to the back to meet Katrina himself. Back in the club room, a new dancer named Candy has taken the stage as Keith watches Allison, who, with a big smile, takes an empty beer bottle and starts spinning it on a table as she points down at it in hopes of Keith noticing. He laughs, thinks it's cute, and awkwardly looks away. She gets annoyed by his actions and walks away, just pouting. AJ's next scene in Katrina's room looking around when Katrina approaches him from behind in a different outfit from before. He's trying to convince her to come down to do a show for a more appreciative audience and that he can make it worth her while. The two sit down together and she starts taking everything, everything off for him. The two start becoming intimate before she transforms and tears into AJ's neck, seemingly killing him. So this is another big moment. These two um, getting down together. <laughs> um, he's just trying to convince her to come back with him. And he's trying his damnedest. And she's in silence, complete silence. But even though Katrina's quiet... You gotta give it to Grace Jones for just she does a lot of acting just through body and facial expressions more than, than even I could put on. So she's definitely got talent there. Um, that the silent deadly approach it's it's definitely effective. Um, the two start getting heavy with each other, like I said, and then she uh, suddenly transforms into a vampire. And just tears his, and it's not even just a neck bite. Like she tears a decent, gory, practical chunk out of this dude's neck, and starts growling, yelling, um, cool voice effects, and just goes back down and just just tearing into this poor sucker's neck, dude. Really feeling for AJ in this scene. Uh, Keith tells Duncan he'll be right back and walks away as Duncan pours all the surrounding half bottles of beer around him into his glass. And continues to drink. Keith goes into the restroom where he sees the club bounce, the club's bouncer Vlad without his shirt on cleaning up. Keith notices the man's back is full of nasty skin tags, and he awkwardly leaves the bathroom. After announcing the next dancer, we see Vic eating cockroaches from a dish at his stand before opening the umbrellas that are on a passing waitress's drink tray reminding her it's a classy establishment. And that's one thing about Vic that we noticed too right off the bat is he's all about class. He's got this hilarious running gag. It's like this running um, obsession with Vegas that runs throughout this film. And I, to me, it's personally, I think it's the funniest gag. Um, anytime the dude mentions Vegas, this the way he gets all wowed and his obsession with Vegas, it's hilarious. Um, there's a couple of moments that happen later on that uh, I'm going to be talking about that I think are hilarious. It's not hilarious, just downright funny, belly-laughing stuff. Um, Keith walks over to Vic's stand after he walks away and casually grabs from Vic's tray and eats one of the cockroaches, which disgusts him and makes him ready to leave. Keith goes to the woman who took AJ to the back and she plays dumb with him about the whole ordeal before Allison comes over and Keith asks her if she's ever had one of those nights. The worker goes back to Katrina and warns her that he's got friends looking for him 
Allison then brings Keith backstage after he tells her he's looking for AJ. So she she seemingly knows who AJ is, still not ringing a bell who he who she is to him. Uh, Keith, not AJ. Uh, they meet the worker in the back. Hold on a sec. When I say that, I mean she knows who AJ is, but Keith is still not knowing who she is. Sorry, just to clarify that. Uh, they meet the worker in the back who says he wanted to see Katrina, but she didn't show, but she didn't introduce them. Keith is skeptical because he says AJ would not just leave. Allison reveals she's on her break and needs to go back to her place to get a new top and that she bets AJ was taken back there by someone else. Keith goes to the back uh, yeah, Keith goes to the back of the building to wait for Allison when he sees the bouncer pulling a cart over to the dumpster and then he sees the bouncer Vlad meet with a tow truck driver and hands him a bunch of personal belongings. So, you know, something's going on, but we're just turning a blind eye still. Keith and Allison are walking together and he's still confused as to who she is and how she knows him. Um, they then talk about why she works at the club. She says to him it's an easy job and that she's still trying to find her purpose in life. The two walk by a little girl in a dress who is sitting outside by herself. Um, Allison goes to talk to her, but she runs away. So we're just we're establishing this this cute little romancing relationship that's clearly building between the Keith and Allison characters. I think it's adorable, these two. I really do. It's it's the whole who is she thing. It's it's a cute little gag that, that, that you know, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's it's a nice little way of keeping these two together without forcing them, you know what I mean? So the uh back at Katrina's room, Vic is insulting the girl who let AJ to the back, um, in front of Katrina. She says that he was so beautiful and that he was alone and fit the profile. Vic says he'll take care of it. Katrina then kills the girl by ripping her heart out straight from her chest. Alright, so Allison and Keith arrive at her place. Allison goes and gets the key from the guy at the desk and the two go up to room 13. Inside the elevator, we see an old man with a very, very obvious black wig toupee thing going on. Um, he's just standing quietly and there behind him having a good laugh about it. Uh, the elevator then stops and Keith gets off first before Allison yells for him to wait. The door closes with her still inside. Keith starts walking down the hallway and stops when he notices the elevator door open back up, but this time no one's inside. He goes to enter. The door closes on him, knocks him down in between the elevator and the floor. Before the, the uh, concoction can cut him in half, he uses a fire extinguisher to trap the door before he quickly slides out and saves himself. Keith runs out of the apartment complex at this point, and we are then next back at the club. Vic is seen giving Vlad a hard time because of everything happening. And then back outside, we have Keith and Allison again. They're reunited. When she asks him why he's so testy, he responds with this. Hey! There you are! What happened? They told me you left. AJ, did you find him? No, God, you look awful. What happened to you? The girl, what did she say? Well, it's weird. I went to her apartment. It was like no one lived there. Empty, just some garbage bags. What are you so testy about? Testy? 
You want to know why I'm testy? I'll tell you why I'm testy. Today, I was nearly hung. I got into a fight with a psychotic albino. I met a human pincushion in the bathroom. I hit a cockroach. My best friend disappears. And then I'm nearly assassinated by a runaway elevator. I've had a bad day. All I want to do is find AJ and get back to school. Is that too much to ask for? Oh, no. So Keith and Allison have another exchange about how she remembers him, but he doesn't remember her before splitting up. Back at the club, Duncan is walking around drunk, telling everybody how he loves them and making a fool of himself. Vic and Flad float. Vic and Vic and Flad throw more passed out patrons out from the clubs. Outside in the alley, a car pulls up in front of Keith, and it's revealed to be Snow and the rest of his gang. A chase gives way as Keith eventually goes down a manhole into a sewer to hide from them. But when he does, they find him. Instead of attacking him, they pull the ladder up, close the lid on the manhole so that Keith is trapped down there. To which he says, all of this for a fucking fraternity. Keith spots the little girl from earlier and watches as one of the gang members approaches her and gets attacked and killed by her in vampire creature, creature form. Keith continues walking around the sewers, first finding an old man holding and then eating a rat after saying he's found his friend, and then he eventually finds his way out back into the streets. As soon as he gets out, he's immediately seen by the gang once again, and another chase gives way. Keith runs and hides inside of a dumpster, and this is when he finds AJ's dead body. Keith then jumps out of the dumpster and is almost killed by an approaching garbage truck. It's just kind of a weird scene. The um, garbage truck is going down with its uh, pillars down, like it's going to pull up one of the dumpsters. You know how the dumpster trucks have the... Yeah. And it's just going after him. And it's, it's never distinguished whether or not this was someone working with the vampires or this was an actual dump truck driver. I, I don't know. Keith just kind of rolls out of the way and runs away, calls the police at a payphone, and that's it. Back in Katrina's room, uh, Vic asks her if she's considered his, his uh, suggestion to move to Vegas because clubs are very hot in Vegas right now. Katrina is seen this entire time taunting him with a razor blade before finally slitting her wrists and allowing him to drink her blood. He says before doing so that it's a very nasty habit. Keith gets back to the club and he tells a very drunk Duncan that AJ is dead. He next runs to the bathroom to wash up, and then he winds up sitting down in his stall. He hears someone entering and begins knocking open all the stall doors one by one. When the mysterious person gets to Keith's stall, the last one, of course, he's re the person is revealed to be an unscathed AJ, who tells him to relax. It was all just a joke. Keith's not laughing, tells AJ he thought Snow and his guys killed him. AJ tells him to relax, that he was rolled. Vic then enters and tells Keith there's uniformed men in the back and they want to see him. In the back with Duncan, Keith's explaining to the cops that he thought AJ was dead and the cops aren't buying it. AJ is then seen hilariously making moves on a stripper the entire time while this is all taking place right in front of them all. Cop tells him, oh, you mean this dead friend? Says the three aren't in a nice area and that he doesn't like coming to it and that everyone needs to go home. Vic escorts the cop out so that he can catch the last act, and Duncan follows. Katrina and AJ share a look at this moment. Keith is ready to leave, but AJ is in no hurry. When he finally convinces him to go, 
the stripper that AJ was making a move on is suddenly revealed to be a fully turned vampire who attacks the two friends. When Keith kills her with a stab to the heart with, a, with her high heel shoe, AJ reveals himself to be a vampire as well and tells Keith that he cannot let him leave. He's a dinner bell. He's, he's food. Keith says that they'll go home and call doctors. AJ says home's another planet and that he's a zombie now. At this point, he is fully turned. Eyes, big eye contacts, yellow eye contacts and everything. It's a pretty cool makeup effect job, not going to lie. AJ tells him that he loves him but can only see food and that he's starving. He says he's carrying his next meal around in his veins and that they got him good. Keith then offers a little bit of his blood, which makes AJ laugh, and he says, You're so nice. So I look like a mosquito? After more back and forth between the two best friends, AJ tosses Keith the steak and tells him that he's got to kill him. But when, Keith come, but when Keith can't come to do it, he pushes himself into the broken steak, seemingly killing himself. And before dying, he tosses Keith his car keys and reminds him, you can burn or keep them from their coffins past sunrise. So AJ is out. He's, uh, like I said, he's, he's turned and, you know, he's going to kill his best friend, but he can't come to do it. And he just grabs, when he knows that his best friend Keith can't, you know, come to kill him, he does it for him in one of those kind of cliche sequences but you know it's it's still kind of effective i like it back in the club we got vic announcing the last call as everyone collect them, collects themselves keith and allison tell duncan that it's time to go while heading out vic confronts keith and tells him that there's a problem with his bill while allison and duncan are then confronted by a bunch of co-workers who reveal their fangs so keith tells everyone around to call the police that these people are vampires and you hear some pretty funny voice work uh, voiceover works uh someone in the club yelling doesn't make them bad people allison is seen telling duncan that aj's dead to which he drunkenly responds again everyone in the club's laughing at keith's vampire claim including vic vic then tells keith that he's a statistic and that when asked by keith why them says that it was a mistake and a little miscommunication error after a little more back and forth between the two, Keith ends up convincing the bartender for an entire bottle of brandy since he's going to die right there anyway. Last request as they do in Vegas. This is this is a funny scene. Okay. So going back, playing off of the uh, Vegas obsession that Vic has, uh, Keith whips up this little story about how when, you know, it's last call in Vegas, it's something called a last request and that they can pretty much drink anything they want because they're going to go anyway. And he thinks that that's a great idea. He's like, they do that? They do that in Vegas? He's like, yeah, it's called a last request. It's, it's hilarious, his like reaction to the whole Vegas thing. Can I ask you something? You ever been to Vegas? Hey, how about uh, you buying me and my friends uh, a last round? Kind of a last request. Like they do in Vegas. They do that in Vegas? Whoa, that's classy. Now that's classy. Sure. Uh, excuse me. Would you give this gentleman whatever he wants? So he takes the bottle and pours some of it into some glasses, and then he hands the glasses to Allison and whispers into her ear to spill the drinks around the place. Keith does the same, followed by setting the place ablaze with a zippo. The three get through a trap door, and they go up an elevator into the streets. Back inside the burning club, Vic is sitting in his office telling Vlad, 
about how he would have loved to have seen Vegas. He pours himself a drink and says it's his first drink in 75 years before taking his shot. And then off screen, when his arm comes back down, it's revealed to be on fire. Back outside, the, uh, the three return to the car when it's rammed by a tow truck from out of nowhere and forced onto the sidewalk where another truck is waiting to smash the trio. They narrowly escape, however, when someone gets into their car and drives off, giving Keith an opening to drive out at the last second. While driving home, Duncan's revealed to be a vampire in the back seat and starts attacking Keith and Allison before the car smashes and set on fire. Now, <clears throat> going back to Duncan in the back seat as the vampire, this scene... It's great. It's got, it's 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 just kind of played for comedic effect. It's nothing scary. It's Duncan in the back with the full decked out makeup, white eyes, and everything. He's aged rapidly. Um, it's funny because uh, what time to be on the make, the making of talks about how he, you know, of course I mentioned earlier how he couldn't wait to be a vampire on screen, but he said that once he got in the prosthetic makeup and everything and looked at himself in the mirror, he could not wait to get back out of it because it made him remind himself that he looks like his grandfather and it started to freak him the hell out, he said. So yeah, he's in the back seat playing this up, um, doing a little thing where he's like kind of reaching for the camera. And then, like I said, the car crashes, they get out, it's set on fire. They run away. Duncan's in the back seat. He can't get out, and he just presses himself up against the window with his breath um, showing on the glass, and he just kind of screams for him, and then the car explodes, killing him. So goodbye, Duncan. Uh, So Allison and Keith run to a gun shop and get inside to arm themselves. This is where Keith takes a crossbow for his weapon and uses it to interrogate Allison so that he can finally remember her. Before he can get an answer from her, though, he uses the crossbow to kill a vampire that's trying to attack her from behind. They go and run outside to a bus that's approaching, but when they get to the bus, the bus driver reveals himself to be a vampire. They turn around and are now surrounded by vampires on the street. And this is when Snow and his gang return again because, again... Snow seems to only show up at the worst situations, but in this one, it was actually to their advantage. So they show up, going after Keith again, but inadvertently save them this time. The two run away while Snow gets out of his car and approaches the little girl from before. She ends up killing him uh, before we cut back to Keith and Allison. He just kind of like gets out saying, what is going on? And the little girl is seen just flying towards him. And that's it. Next thing we see is the other two running away in an alley. They end up going down through a manhole back into the sewer. But first, Allison finally tells him who she is. She says that she's Allison from Seaside Heights, summer vacation, fifth grade. They were in Sue Leonard's basement playing Spin the Bottle, where she ended up kissing him. Down in the sewer, the pair end up walking away from someone in high heels. While hiding, Keith finds a hidden door that takes them into the vampire's tomb where all the coffins are. When they go to leave the place, um, the other vampires return, enter their coffins while Keith and Allison hide. Once the vampires are all in their coffins, the two go to quietly leave, but Allison ends up making a sound, and the coffins begin to open back up as they make a run for it. And this is when Keith pushes over a bunch of barrels on his way out. Um, It's not really established what's in these barrels. It's just a liquid, and I guess you can just assume that it's some sort of flammable material. 
asks Allison for her matches, which she happily has. And she, uh, no, it makes her happy that he calls her by her first name instead of Amaretto. Amaretto. That's what they were calling her at the club is Amaretto. I think I forgot to mention that. Keith sets the place on fire, killing all of the local vampires. So then Keith finds Allison's purse when he turns around. It's on the ground, followed by her screaming for him down the sewer. Keith goes and finds her um, being held captive by Katrina. Katrina is threatening to then bite Allison's neck. Keith uses his crossbow to steadily line up a shot at Katrina, holding his shot into place as Katrina continues to threaten a frightened Allison. We see... um, we see Keith's hand start to bleed from holding it in the place for so long. Um, finally, he shoots it. It hits the, uh, Katrina directly in the mouth, freeing Allison in the process. This is when Allison grabs a pipe from the ground and jams it into Katrina's chest before she gets the arrow out of her mouth. Um, she's walking towards Keith as she pulls the pipe out as well while laughing hysterically. Keith then... Um, he allows her to get close enough to him before he begins punching out a bunch of wooden panels, revealing sunlight all around. What does that do? Well, vampires, sunlight, sets her ass ablaze. But not before her giving a skeletal middle finger for good gesture. It's kind of a funny scene. It's like she's on fire at first, and then there's like this black ooze, kind of like this with this reverse shot. <clears throat> um coming off of her to reveal the full skull and then like i said sure her uh skeleton arm kind of comes up from the ground and just gives him the middle finger before that's it uh while leaving the sewers allison is then pulled back down by vlad who is avenging the death of his katrina as he says he suddenly stabbed to the heart by who is revealed to be none other than a surviving aj he tells keith formica go figure AJ says that he'll take the graveyard shift, get a night job. He'll make it work. And this is when Allison and Keith exit the sewers and begin walking down the morning L.A. streets as AJ follows underneath them in the sewers. As they are walking, which is an amazing shot, uh, the end credits start rolling as they are walking out of focus and traffic begins as the two continue to walk. It's a... Really cool shot that they had to hold traffic as the two were acting, doing their final... They do a a last kiss. I forgot to mention that. They kiss and then walk down together um, as the traffic starts rolling and the two walk out of focus and we get our end credits. And that is 1986's Vamp by Richard Wink. How about some trivia? All right. First and foremost... January 28th, 1986 was the first day of production and also happened to be the Space Shuttle Challenger's explosion. So those of you who remember that shuttle explosion from 86, it unofficially coincided with the start of production for this film. And so they knew that they had some bad juju going off of that. That was something that um, Watanabe mentions in the uh, documentary pretty uh cool fact well not really cool it's unfortunate um so trivia not a lot of trivia but i do have some 
Grace Jones, she has zero words of dialogue, and that is because she wanted to take her character and, and do pull a uh, Nosferatu approach, a silent and deadly kind of a creature, villain. The song, I mentioned the song she dances to being her own, called Vamp, and they've been released. The chair that I started to mention during her dance, that is a body cast chair. Yeah, that is uh, made from a body cast from none other than Dolph Lundgren, who was dating Grace Jones at the time. And yeah, that's, that, guys, That honestly, that's that's like the only trivia. I mean, even going through this documentary and going through the whole Blu-ray, it's like I couldn't find much of anything. Everything is pretty cut and dry, cut forward, you know. Uh, it, yeah, so... I guess uh wrapping this up. Let's just let's just wrap it up. Come on. So Vamp has a body count of 17. My unbiased MVP pick for this film goes to none other than Grace Jones. My B Kind Rewind most rewatchable moment goes to the Keith AJ vampire reveal scene. I think it is the Strongest acting from the two. Um, it's kind of a payoff in a sense with these two characters. Um, like the, the the AJ and Keith friendship is one of the main characters of this movie. I, their bond, it's insep. They're they're inseparable. So when this whole vampire reveal happens, it's um, it's it's a powerful moment. It really is, especially for something that's not really known for its dramatic elements and it's not really played for dramatic theme or it's not really played for dramatics period the scene is uh kind of written with a lot of camp and humor and but it's still you know anytime you get two best friends who have an obvious connection when you're forced to at the time at that moment of the film you think aj is gone for good he's out for the count but you know take take what happens later on out of out of the equation here and you know it's it's a very effective moment sorry it, i'm not sorry it is <laughs> uh let's get to the double feature pairing i mentioned this film at the start of the episode and it is the obvious choice it is my choice it is from dust till dawn a film that no one really compares this the, the vamp and from dust till dawn the the similarities between the two movies should be acknowledged more. I'm just going to leave it at that. <clears throat> Star power. Alright, so at the end of the day, I am giving Vamp three and a half out of five stars. This is a very stylish, um, funny, very, it has a lot of replay value. Uh, I think this is one of the more underrated films from the 80s especially when we're talking about horror in general and as far as vampire films go my vamp my favorite vampire film from the 80s decade is near dark i'm i'm a big fan of that movie um would love to do an episode on that one of these days um but vamp is a is a close second for me and I'm and and I'm not even I, I'm not a huge Lost Boys fan. 
I'm a real big fan of Fright Night, but I just I've always liked Vamp more than Fright Night. Um, and then there's The Hunger, which kind of rounds out the the big vampire film from the '80s. Uh, the Hunger was kind of like this, another lesser known vampire movie directed by Tony Scott, starring the great David Bowie and Susan Sarandon. Um, I implore you to check that film out if you haven't already. Uh, I came out in '83. Um, it, that's a film that I feel deserves more play. Like this. Vamp, Hunger. I mean, maybe I should change my answer to The Hunger being my double feature pairing. Nah, I'm not going to. It's from Dust Till Dawn. Deal with it. So, Vamp, yeah, Richard Wink did a great job directing his first film, um, knowing that the production woes that they went through, um, including a quick turnaround, like I mentioned, that they started production of this film in late January. It was scheduled to be released in early July. So six months is not a big turnaround, especially when you have a just a struggling budget. Let's, let's just put it that way: a struggling budget, um, working with the elements that you have. Um, like I said earlier, that there's a reason why the blue and and red lighting is is featured throughout this movie. Um, it's so it's it's a more artistic, stylish look rather than a dull low um low production look that you would get from the just standard cheap white lights in a city feel like this it's it's supposed to be stylish i i feel every vampire film should have its own sort of style to it because the vampire you know creature myth just the vampire genre in general is a stylish thing so yeah it, it, it definitely ties in with the theme and for my money vamp is a film that it deserves rewatches it deserves more fans um 35 years later this is a movie that i, I wish more people did get a hold of and and, and seek out and and watch um I mean, not that the film doesn't have its own cult following because it definitely does. Um, I just would like to see movies like this get a little more appreciation and 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 watches and and you know what I'm getting at. I'm, I'm starting to just go on and on and ramble now, so I'm gonna cut this episode and I'm gonna wrap things up and let everyone know that they can tune in the previous episodes of the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Apple Podcast, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, and wherever else you enjoy your favorite shows. You can follow us on Facebook.com at Mad Dad Movie Review, Instagram.com at Mad Dad Movie Review, YouTube.com at Mad Dad Movie Review, and Twitter.com at Mad Dad Movie Pod. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, or requests, always, always, always email them to MadDadMovieReview at gmail.com. And Thank you so much for tuning in to an all-new episode of the Halloween Horrorthon. I will be back later on this week with an episode on Phantasm from 1979. And then Friday, we'll be back with an all-new Top 10 episode that Mads and I recorded yesterday. We will be talking about our Top 10 favorite Friday the 13th films. Such a fun episode that I did with her just yesterday, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear it. 
all that being said, I hope you guys have a great day. Take care of one another. We'll see you next time. Take it easy.